welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church of Taylorville, Illinois. I hope this podcast stirs your desire for the things of God, and we hope that your faith in Christ will grow like never before. Now let's get into the podcast. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Glad that you're here. Uh, Just in case we haven't had the chance of meeting, my name is Chad. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, My wife and I have been here for just shy of a couple years And God's doing amazing things among us, and we're so glad that you're here in the room. Uh, We can, we can, yeah, clap for what God's doing. He's doing great things. So if you're in the room or you're uh, just catching us on the podcast or on YouTube, just want to say welcome. And uh, if you are brand new, uh, again, welcome, but I want you to know that you're jumping into something that we've been in the middle of for quite some time. Uh, We've been preaching through, I've been preaching through Ephesians. And now we're in a, a couple weeks into a series, right smack dab in the middle of Ephesians. In a moment, I'll catch up as to where we are uh, in the middle of that storyline. But what we've been talking about and what's symbolized with this image is three things coming together that based upon the Word of God in the letter that was written to a church in a place called Ephesus, Ephesus an ancient land, as he was, the Apostle Paul was conveying three general ideas to them, and it's Ideas that I want to generally impart to you if you're in Christ, that we're blessed when we're together and when we're living victoriously, that we're blessed as a people and that we're to be together in a world that's divided, we're to be together. And when we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're actually living victoriously or we're able to live victoriously in Jesus. Um, So we're going to jump into Ephesians in just a moment, but I want to just start here. When you were a kid, did you ever do anything that was crazy? Raise your hand if you did anything that was crazy, right? You lived, so that's good, you know, you you lived to tell the story. I don't know how old I was. I was probably like 11 or 12 years old, and this was in the day before four-wheelers, right? So do you remember a world before four-wheelers? What existed before four-wheelers? Three-wheelers. You know the reason why we don't have three-wheelers anymore, People died. That's why you didn't have three-wheelers anymore. Because when you go fast and you're 11 or 12 years old on a three-wheeler and you're going really, really fast, you can't turn really, really fast. So you either try to turn and skid if you're, if you're into that sort of thing and have skills, or you turn it over multiple times on top of yourself. So again, I was 11 or 12 years old and we were in Arkansas on a little family trip and some family members that I'd never seen living in a whole different place I'd never been, rock roads, and they were out in the middle of the the hills and hollers, lived in a log cabin. It was amazing. And I'm just a young boy and I'm all caught up in the moment. And so they had a three-wheeler that was out there and they asked everybody, hey, who wants to ride the three-wheeler? And I was like, I'm in. i like, absolutely. And then they asked the question, have you ever rode one of these things before? I was like, "Uh uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. No way, I'd never been on it one time. We did have a go-kart, which is a funny story I'll tell you at another time. Um, But, and we also, I had some experience riding motorcycles, very, very little bit. So I was like, never been on a three-wheeler, didn't tell them jumped on, got on the thriller. I watched him go up and down the road, uh, my cousins, distant cousins, and I'm watching them have so much fun. And I was like, I want to have that kind of fun. So I got on it. I did a couple passes myself. I'm learning the shifting. And I was like, this isn't that hard. So then I go up the road just to the right where the house is. And I'm going back to the left down past where the, the log cabin is, where they lived. And I'm flying down the road and I'm just like so confident and I'm going up and down and it's great. And the road's rocky and it's amazing. And then I look up 
and right in front of my face, before I could respond and before I could throttle down and use the clutch to decelerate or use the brake, I noticed that the road turned very sharply to the right. And after the road turned sharply to, right, to the right, there was a bridge. So just about the moment I realized that, I also realized there was nothing I could do and I was going to fly off the road. So I did fly off the road. I missed the turn. I went straight. I should have turned right. Didn't know how. Flew off the road, through the ditch, through a little bit of the woods, over the creek bank on one side, Dukes of Hazard, over hit the other side of the creek bank. The front tire hit on the other side of the creek bank, and I, I basically realized what I had done when the three-wheeler is on top of me, now backwards, wheels up in the air, and I'm laying in a creek bed with that thing on top of me. Not the best of choices, but I had a lot of fun. <laughs> the thing is, when we do stuff like that, we often get bad advice. We'll say, or maybe it's just somebody will say something. I learned this phrase in the South, which actually doesn't mean what you think it may mean. When, when somebody does something like that, in the South, what a lot of people say is, bless your heart, which actually is code for you're an idiot, but I didn't know that at the time. I was like, oh, bless your heart. That's nice. They care. No, they don't. They don't. They don't. So they say, bless your heart, or they give you advice, and they say certain things like, well, you know... Well, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you... Yeah, that's horrible advice. <laughs> hey, you barely lived. Awesome. Do it again. That's what, that's what if you're 11 or 12 years old and you get advice like that. You see, we have to be really careful of the advice that we give people, don't we? Because sometimes when we give people advice, we're actually giving them permission to do something. And we don't even know it. Sometimes when we give somebody advice, and maybe even for us, we're so caught up in the moment, we're not actually thinking wise about the advice we're giving. We just offer up some advice, and we just kind of say things. What we do so many times in our lives, so this is if your grandparents, parents, parents, or don't even have kids, you just have friends and you're mingling with, just because the influence that you have, sometimes the advice you give gives somebody else permission. Now think about that in the world that we live in and all the division and everything that's going on in our country, the chaos abounding overseas in the land of Israel. And think about all of the words that have been using, that, that people are using and all the political pundits, they're saying this and saying that and they're giving advice as, as to what to do. Some are saying what not to do and all the chaos abounding. Now we kind of feel the tension of that, don't we? Because the words that we use and the advice that we give matters. But I would say this, not only do we, have, do we need to have wisdom as to when we give advice, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, we also need to come to terms with this, that our, decision, our decisions affect others. Our decisions affect others. There was a great uh, movie that was made several years ago with Will Smith in it, and he was the lead uh, actor, and there was a little boy in it, and the movie was called The Pursuit of Happiness. Many of you probably have seen the movie. Great, encouraging, true story of a gentleman by the name of Chris Gardner who himself was, uh, didn't have a good example when he was growing up. His, I think his dad left him. His stepfather abused him. A lot of chaos abounds. Chris Gardner then goes into the Navy, and then his life falls apart soon after, and he goes into homelessness. But he's very gifted. He's very intelligent, and he's pursuing this, this job in, in kind of the financial realm somewhere out west. And, and again, it's a true story, and, and you see, and it's portrayed very well in this movie, that, that Chris Gardner is trying to make the, the most wise decision for not only himself, but also the well-being of his son. 
And you see it and you feel the tension of that when he's, he's going through the ebbs and flows of homelessness and trying to get the job. And then he eventually gets the job. And it wasn't just him who was benefiting from the job. It was also Chris Jr., his son, who was benefiting from the job. And such, a, such I guess, a, a, a fun, true way that we can connect with this reality that our decisions affect others. That, that our decisions, they too, just like our advice, needs to be rooted in wisdom. It needs to be rooted in what's true. It needs to be more rooted, I believe, in what this says rather than what the media says. Or maybe what uh, the, the people who influence you on social media say. We need to have something that's more grounded and more true than simply responding to the world around us. You see, foolishness abounds in wisdom we lack. Foolishness we see and experience everywhere, but wisdom we lack. The great thing about wisdom is this. A person who, is, who acts wisely towards God and his people will succeed more in life. A person who acts wisely, not just when we're giving advice, but also not just in us making decisions for other people, but making decisions for ourselves. A person who acts wisely towards God and people will succeed more in life. You may say, well, pastor, how do you have the gall to declare that to be true? Well, I'm actually standing upon something I believe that is even more true than my words because my words could be fallible, but the word of God is not fallible. Proverbs 2, verse 6, I invite you to go there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we actually have some spread throughout the seats, probably in front of you or under you. And a great way to find Proverbs is this. If you just to go into just to a Bible generally and just open that Bible up, just about the middle of the Bible, you're probably going to be landing in some, some weird names that we don't really hear that much. But then if you go to the left just a little bit, you're going to see something that says maybe Proverbs or Psalms, and you're really close to where you need to be. Psalms 2, and Psalms is just a collection of wise sayings. They're not all promises, but they're all wise sayings. They're all actually, many of these sayings were passed down, not just in the Bible. I love this, how even people who don't believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God, people even outside of the scope of Christianity, I want you to know that many of these Proverbs, they're so wise that God saw fit that they would actually be wrapped into other writings, even outside of the Bible, because they're just true of life. And notice Again, I believe that this is Bible, so this is canonized. This is a standard for a practice and, and belief of the Christian faith. But in Proverbs 2, verse 6 through 11, it's going to help us and guide us in our journey to Ephesians. Verse 6 says this, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. A person who acts wisely towards God and people will succeed more in life and that's what the, the author, the divinely authorized author of this proverb tells us, that when you and I, when we live under the banner of the, the wisdom that God gives, from the mouth of God comes knowledge and understanding, 
And that he, God, holds victory in store for the upright. He, God, is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he, God, guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then notice, that's what God does. And then as that passage transitions in verse 9, it says this. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair every good path. You'll know what to do. You'll know what to say, the decisions that you should make, the path of your life. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. You see, all the Proverbs, it parallels this idea of a wise person and a foolish person. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, that's where we're transitioning now into the New Testament, into Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15 through 21. What's implied in this passage is that you want to choose wisdom. What's also implied is that that the audience would know that God imparts wisdom. And that when someone lives a life sacrificed to God, they've given their lives over to Jesus. Now, because of that that imitation of God, that what we learned about in verse 1, chapter 5 last week, when we're, now that we're imitating God, we're in a discipleship with Jesus, then that person can actually live a life of wisdom. And a life of wisdom is pleasing to you, and it's beneficial to the world, and it's glorifying to God. Verse 15 is what we're going to jump into. I need to get there. Apparently, I've been talking and not flipping. I'll get there. Verse 15 tells us, To be careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Submit submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our behavior as Christians flows from our belief in Christ. So what the Apostle Paul offers here by way of the Holy Spirit is to be careful then how you live. Not as unwise people, as foolish people, as ignorant people, as people who don't know the truth, but instead live as people who do know the truth. Live as people who are informed by God to know what it is that you're supposed to do, when it is that you're supposed to do it, and have the faith to walk through that thing that God has been whispering in your ear to do. What I love about this passage is this isn't just for old people like me. And some of you, you look at me, I don't think I'm old, but some of you think I'm old. Because when I was your age, I saw somebody else who was 48, and I thought, man, they're old. They're going to meet Jesus tomorrow. (laughs) I mean, that's what I thought when I was 17. And, and, you know, I saw anybody who was in their 40s, I was like, wow, they're old. Well, what I love about this passage is it doesn't matter how old you are. This is true for you. There's something here for you. No matter if you're 
you're, you're 20 years ahead of me or you're 40 years behind me in age, there's something here that God has for you. There's an invitation there to be very careful. To be very careful. It's a literal meaning in the Greek. It means to look and observe. In other words, pay attention. Another translation of Ephesians 5 and the ESV translation, it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. When I was in the Navy, there was a, a common phrase. I worked on airplanes. There was a common phrase everywhere I would go, and there was a, a reminder. I got so sick of hearing it, but it's true. And they used to say, keep your head on a swivel. Look around. And, you know, when I was 19 years old, I was like, what do you people know? Well, they knew that if I didn't keep my head on a swivel, I might get hurt or worse. And yet, what the Apostle Paul is telling us, he says, look around. Carefully observe your life. Carefully observe the influence that God has given you. Carefully observe the advice that you give other people. And carefully observe the decisions that you make because they also might impact other people. So carefully look then how you walk. Keep your head on a swivel. See where the Lord is. And move towards the direction he's leading you to. There's an ancient writing by, the, by an author by the name of John Bunyan. And some of you are readers. I would advise you to read a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Which it's an allegorical writing. Which means it's not a true story. But it's an allegory of real life. And it tells. Uh, Bunyan writes and tells this story of, a, of the protagonist in the story is a gentleman by the name of Christian and, and it mimics the Christian life because you see Christian on this journey of his life trying to make wise decisions. It's such a picture of us. And maybe it'd be beneficial for you to read that to, to see in, in a different light what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, although there's wisdom that is on offer, sometimes people don't choose wisdom. They actually choose to live unwise, careless, foolish, or even unbelieving lives. You see, some of these people we, we refer to as atheists, people who simply do not believe in God. And theological atheists have no true wisdom. Theological atheists have no true wisdom. How do I know that? Well, I know that because the Word of God is clear. I'll share some scripture with you. Romans 5.8 says this, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Verse 10, same chapter of Romans, says, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still enemies, we will be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in, in the wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a change. When somebody gives their life to Jesus, there's a, a pathway to, to new life. They're, the Bible says that they're born again. It's a spiritual rebirth that happens to where they have new desires and they have, they have a new emotional base and they have a new spirit that's within them. Although that was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus, it happened after the resurrection of Jesus in this moment at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was released into believers. 
And it was released not so they would just sit in this holy huddle and sit in the upper room. There's about 120 of them. As soon as they relieved the Holy Spirit, then they went on mission to tell other people about the, the wonderful work of Jesus and the miraculous power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changed their life. It sent them out. It's because there had been a change that happened inside of them. It's a change that the Apostle Paul also writes about in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, when he wrote this, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, sin is that which is against God. Since the fool doesn't recognize God, he does not recognize sin. That's what John MacArthur had said. So sin is that which is against God. And since the fool doesn't recognize God, he doesn't recognize his own sin. So it's like he's perpetually tripping over his life and he has no real fulfillment in life and there's no true joy in life. He may have to settle for a person or a pill to try and satisfy his cravings, sensual desires, and everything else, but it's never fulfilling. It always leaves them more empty. What the Apostle Paul is is saying here is the only way that you can be whole and complete is to have the Spirit of God within you is to get outside of yourself, to die to self so that Christ can reign and live in you. And those things happen and it offers up a spiritual discernment as to, to have the mind of Christ. There's another passage that talks about this, that we can have the mind of Christ, an understanding of what to do to be wise. There's a powerful and yet kind of comical way that the proverb uh, doles itself out in Proverbs 15, verse 2. It says this, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge appealing, but the mouth of the fool belches out foolishness. What a picture. What a picture. I would say it's, it's kind of like if you're lost at sea and you're a little dinghy in the middle of the ocean by yourself and you're just trying to cling to life, It's like you're just dying of thirst and you have no thirst. So instead what you do is you dip into the ocean to try and take drinks of the ocean, drink of the water in the ocean. And in the moment, it may be refreshing and cooling, but yet when you do it over time, it only kills you. It never satisfies you. I'll use a less abrupt example that some of the younger audience can understand. It's like when you're really thirsty and you don't want to drink water. So instead you start drinking Baja Blast and you're drinking more Baja Blast and more Baja Blast or maybe some Code Red and then you start eating saltines because you're a little bit hungry. So there's like more saltines and more Baja Blast and a little bit more Code Red and then when you do that over time, you're only going to be more thirsty. It's not fulfilling. When you submit your life to God, it is fulfilling from your, your toes to your fingertips and everywhere in between. There's nothing that satisfies like God. There's there's nothing else in this world that offers an opportunity for us to to deny ourselves to live with wisdom. And yet there are people who are even inside the the church who are not theological atheists, but they're practical atheists. And a practical atheist is someone who lives as if they don't have wisdom. Practically, they may know the things of God or even know the scriptures, but yet 
the, the knowledge of the things of God and the knowledge of the scriptures doesn't find its way into the hands and feet of actually walking out of the passage, passages that we see in scripture. Uh, an example of this would have been from the 1980s in a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Swagger. Some of you remember that name. Another tragic story, another tragic tale of somebody who had great influence, who called themselves a Christian, had given a great public platform, him being a televangelist, and it all collapsed after some financial misdealings and when he was in prison. And when he was going to jail for mismanaging ministry money, a man asked him, said, Jimmy, when did you stop loving Jesus? And this shook Jimmy Swaggart in that moment, and he said, I never stopped loving Jesus but I stopped fearing God. I stopped fearing God. That's an example of practical atheism. Where you just stop fearing God. You stop fearing consequences. You stop caring. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. A gentleman by the name of James in the the New Testament, about to the end of the New Testament, is a really short book. And what's amazing about James is James is the half-brother of Jesus. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, was convinced that Jesus was God. To the extent that he didn't just, didn't just say some things or do some things, his whole life was banking on the truth of Jesus' Life, birth, and resurrection, that Jesus indeed was God. So James, James puts his own life down. But before he dies, he writes this, this letter to some Christians. And this is some wisdom that he says from the New Testament. James 1, through 24 says, but, do not, but don't just listen to God's word. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself and walk away and forget what you look like. He continues in verse 25. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and you don't forget what you heard, then God will bless your life for doing it. We have to do, not only hear God's word. We need to do what it says. You're not going to be perfect. I'm never perfect in doing it. It's not a matter of being perfect. It's just a matter of being connected to the perfect one, and that is Jesus Christ. Because he in advance forgives us of our sins and our iniquities. He in advance, when you commit your life to Jesus, he not only forgives you of the sins of the past, but also the sins of the present and also the sins of the future. Not only does he he forgive you of the sins that you willingly committed, but he also forgives you of the times where you were supposed to be be obedient and you weren't obedient. He forgives you of all of those circumstances and times in between. But he doesn't in advance. So then we can lean heavily into verses 16 of of Ephesians 5. Because he's imparting wisdom, because we have right relationship with God, then he says we can make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And what a day do we live in right now. What a day. What Paul is trying to convey to, to us and the Holy Spirit is trying to say to you directly is pay attention 
Make the most of every opportunity that you have right now. The days, moments, and times in your life matter. Don't be frivolous with your time. Don't be frivolous with with the wisdom that God offers. Don't be frivolous with your influence. Don't be frivolous with your advice. Instead, trust God and let Him lead you with wisdom. Making the most of every opportunity. That word opportunity is, is a word that's used several different times throughout the Scriptures. And there's two different types of time. There's chronos time. You think of just... As the time passes, you could look at a watch and you just see time passing. Mine doesn't have a second hand, but I can just see the minutes. That's chronos time and time just passes by. But the word for opportunity is a Greek word, keros, and it means event-oriented time. And a keros moment, just so you know, is rarely neutral. It's, it's God-oriented time. It's those opportunities that are divinely oriented around you where God breaks through in the midst of the monotony of your life, where God breaks through maybe a painful moment in your life, where God breaks through and shines the light of the Holy Spirit in your life, and that causes a spiritual disruption, and that is a moment for you to stop what you're doing, stop what you're saying, look up to God, and embrace the world that God has for you. We're in the middle of a, of a public keros moment. And the keros moment is, is getting our attention. If you're paying attention to anything that's going on in the world right now, then you've maybe seen some of the horrendous bloodshed that has happened over the last week in Israel. The ones now that are on the media outlets, they're all trying to gather up sides, and I, I predicted it at home, and I'm just telling you the same thing's happening now. To where it just depends on which news outlet, but they're all trying to politicize it. And, and we're all in the midst of it because now we have a choice to make. We can either observe what's going on in all of the world today and embrace those coming to faith because of the dis- this disruption that's happening in the world today, We can either shrink in fear, but the Lord did not give us a spirit of fear, but instead it's a spirit of power, love, and sound mind is what uh, what Paul said to Timothy. But we have an opportunity now to where we can just write this off as just some some political thing that's just happening of, of just two ancient lands that's so far separated from us, or we can pay very close attention to Scripture's like what a lot of people are doing, including myself and Marla and I are doing this, going into the scriptures to say, God, is, are you doing something redemptive in, in the world we live in today? Is there something that you prophesied about, about the end of days? Is there something that you're doing now? Is there something in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that you're, you've shown us for a long time and now we have to zero in on this Kairos moment to see, God, what are you doing among us? And I think that is what's happening. I asked you last week, and I'll, I'll ask you again, please pray for Israel. Pray, pray for the innocent people who are left and that God would be merciful and kind and compassionate towards them. But also pray for Hamas. Because they too can have a changed heart. 
pray that the spirit of God will break through the spirit of evil that has kept them captive and the demonic powers that are controlling them, that God will maybe break through, that there would be something happened here other than just dividing lines between good and evil. What if God moved among the people in Hamas and Hezbollah and the rest of the radical terrorists who are just murdering and just taking advantage of innocent people? What if the spirit of God moved through there? Wouldn't that be more triumphant than saying that we won a battle? The answer is yes. So pray for all of these people. But we support Israel. God's people are there. They're still playing a part just as we are in the part of redemptive history. But we're all in the middle of a chaos moment. We should be praying people, trusting people, looking at, meaning trusting in what God says and and trusting, taking his word serious, scouring the scriptures to see what is God doing today. You see, these chaos moments, they signal opportunities to grow. They also, they always lead because they're divinely oriented time. They're, they're opportunities that lead us to a deeper walk with Jesus and love for others. Because it's divinely oriented time. I love what Mike Breen said in his book, Building a Discipleship Culture. He said it in this way. He said, a keros moment is when the eternal God breaks into your circumstances with an event, gathers some of the loose ends of your life and knots them together in his hands. What a word picture. That a, that a keros moment is not a chaotic moment. It's a God-orchestrated moment where God shines through the midst of our chaos and our pain or or just even joy and bliss, because God just doesn't work in pain. Sometimes he works through celebration. But to connect loose ends for his glory, for our good. Notice what the Apostle Paul says as we press on in this passage. He says in verse 17, he says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And then he uses this is seemingly a, a weird connection here. And he says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Which that part makes sense because nothing good happens after somebody says, hold my beer, right? If you've ever been in those circles, I've been in those circles and somebody says, hold my beer. Usually there's something bad that's happening right after that and everybody just stands. They don't just stand there close. They back away because they see a disaster happening. But he says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, kind of a phrase that ties into next week, but definitely connects into this message. Submit to one, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I'll spend just a moment. He says, do not get... Do not get drunk. In other words, don't be under the influence of alcohol. Why would he say this? Would he say this just because this fits well into what a lot of Baptists believe? No. That's not why he's saying this. The reason why he's saying this is because there was cult practices in the day of this writing where there was a, a cult practice where they would get in and they would worship under this, this, this cult practice of Dionysus. And, and part of the cult practice of Dionysus was they believed, faulty belief, but they believed that if they, would, they could get intoxicated with alcohol, that they could have some sort of like 
transformative experience so that they believe that they could get intoxicated in the middle of this worship of this, of, in this temple, that, that something spiritual would happen and that it was only through the pathway of this alcohol could they actually have this spiritual experience. This too is not that hard to understand. I mean, certain people in our culture right now are celebrating not the use of alcohol as much, but celebrating different type of psychedelic drugs. People like a famous football player and a famous podcaster have made this thing called ayahuasca popular. Maybe you haven't heard of those things, but if you were born in, if you were alive in the 60s and 70s, it was, it's basically just a newer version of LSD. And what it was, and the lie that was then, and it's the lie now, if you just take these drugs, it will take you out and you'll have an out-of-the-body experience. And it will be, and I've heard many people give testimony as to, to these wild mushrooms and different things that people are taking that it will give them some out-of-body experience. And if you've heard Aaron Rodgers, the one who, who's taken it and made it public, or you heard Joe Rogan, who's also taken it public, both of them use very similar language of talking about it's some transformative spiritual experience. Now we see what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this letter. They just believe that they would just take alcohol and they could, if they were just bathing in alcohol, then they would be able to be filled with it and they could have some sort of intoxicating thing. But notice what he says. Don't be drunk with wine, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, and there's also another error that happens, and it's a common misbelief that if those who more lean on the Spirit, there's something that happens even in a faith system like ours to think, well, people who are more charismatic, that they're filled with the Spirit, and I don't want any part of that chaos. That's not what the Apostle Paul is advocating here. Instead, what the Apostle Paul is advocating here, and he would also advocate in Galatians 5, is to be under the the power of the Holy Spirit is actually to have a self-control, and self-control is spiritual control. It's not chaos. It's it's to actually have self-control, to actually be able to, spiritually speaking, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to have access into all the regions of your life. This is what... The Apostle Paul is saying here is like, you don't need some out-of-body experience. You need an in-body experience, but you need an indwelling of the Holy Spirit to make that happen. So he says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. And what's very hopeful about this, right at the end of this, of this passage, he says, and when you do this, when you live with wisdom, When you don't have chaos in the church, when you don't have chaos in your life outside of the church, when you don't fall to debauchery and drunkenness, when you don't fall into the traps of the world, when you can navigate through life, and when we come together, he says, and there's three things, we'll quickly fill in the blank. He says there's three signs, there's three things that you'd be able to see in a spirit-filled church to help us. For us to be able to identify, are we doing the right thing? And he said, there's, there's three things at the back end of this passage. He said, a spirit-filled church will be a singing church. There'll be a singing, singing church. Notice what it says in verse 19. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Heart to the Lord. The second thing, the second thing is, they will be a thankful church. 
where there would just be a spirit of gratitude among us. Thankful of the God who redeems us and the God who protects us and the God who wanted a relationship with us in the first place and a God that we can call friend. And then he says, and this I'll borrow from you, verse 21, when he says, submit to one another out of reference, or reverence, excuse me, for Christ. The third sign of a spirit-filled church is they honor, they respect, and they help one another. They honor, and they lift up. They lift up each generation. They don't see each generation at odds with the next one or with the previous one. They just honor people. And they respect them. And they help them. This is what this church is about. For us not to shrink in fear, but for us to live with the wisdom that God offers. To be in tune culturally, but not to be so inebriated with what's going on in the culture that we lose sight of where God is in the midst. Would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? How's God speaking to you today? What's He saying? What's He saying? Is he just telling you, hey, you need to pray more. You need to pray. You need to, you need to maybe untie yourself from the news media, and instead you need to tie yourself to God's word. Is he telling you that you need to not be so, so eager to talk about it to people, but maybe what you need to do is you just need to go to God and just pray about where you are in your life right now. Maybe you're just fearful. It's easy to be. It's quite natural. It's quite natural, actually. Outside of the supernatural work of God, we will all we would all be fearful. But again, I'll remind you, God didn't give us a spirit of fear because we already had that. But He replaced it with the Holy Spirit, and it's a spirit of power and of love and sound mind. That's not just in the midst of our day. That's in the midst of any day. Maybe today what you need to do is, is you just need to come forward, not necessarily to repent of nonsense. Maybe you just need to go to God and just an act of faith, just to go to the front to pray. And maybe you just need to say, God, I just want to lay it out. I just, I just, I just want to give you myself today. In prayer, in prayer, God, just pouring it out to you. The altars are open. Come forward now. Maybe for you, you just need to pray because you know somebody who's not making wise decisions. And you need to either pray in your seat or you need to pray at the front to say, just go to God and say, God, I'm just I'm interceding on their behalf. They're not making wise decisions. I feel their pain and I know what they're getting ready to do. Maybe you just need to pray that the Spirit of God would break through. But maybe for you, all of this is foreign and you don't even know Jesus at all. What a shame for you to leave today in the same way that you came. What a shame for you to, to walk away from 
the love of God that was shown by Jesus on the cross. What a shame for you to walk away with a certain amount of head knowledge and thinking, yeah, Jesus did that, but yet not repenting of your old life and committing uh, to a new way of living and being born again. What a shame for you to walk away the same way that you came. What a shame. But it would also be a shame for us, but it would also be a shame for us not to be obedient to what it is that God has for us. I'm going to give some space, and I'm going to give as much space as, as what God would have us to, to take. For you to pray, for you to move, for you to talk, whatever it is that you need to do. Don't delay. Do it now.